Welcome to the Education Gadfly Show. I'm your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Today, Kirsten Basler, the state superintendent of North Dakota, joins us to discuss her state's latest initiatives to increase teacher and principal apprenticeship programs. Then, on the Research Minute, Amber discusses a new study that examines the accuracy and efficacy of school rating systems. All this on the Education Gadfly Show. This is the Education Gadfly Show. I have double A batteries. Everybody knows what that means. It's <laughs> right. not that hard. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now please welcome our special guest for this week, Kirsten Baszler. Kirsten, welcome to the show. Really good to be with you, Mike. Kirsten is the state superintendent of schools for the great state of North Dakota. I believe perhaps the first person from North Dakota to be on the Education Gadfly Show. Well, I am very honored to be that first person from North Dakota. We've got a lot going on, so um, I think we'll have some things to talk about. You do indeed, including a, a governor running for president. So yes, the map. And both debates, he's gotten very little airtime, but on both debates, he has mentioned education in both of those. And his rare, um, rare opportunity to speak, he's mentioned education. So very pleased about that. But uh, he's a big supporter of education. So unfortunate. Yeah. All right. Well, also joining us as always, David Griffith. Hey, Mike. Always a pleasure. Yeah. Great to have you here. Well, Kirsten, excited to have you on. Uh, you have been leading uh, the development of some really cool programs in North Dakota to address the teacher shortage, which, as we were saying before the show, is is a national problem, maybe even an international problem. Uh, you've got these apprenticeship programs that are starting up for both teachers and for principals. And I'll admit, I have heard and seen some of these articles about apprenticeships, and I've thought to myself, I don't really know what that means. And so tell us what that means and what you are up to on in North Dakota. Let's do that on Ed Reform Update. Okay, Kirsten. So yeah, t- tell us, what 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 are these teacher and principal apprenticeships all about? So I think a lot of states have grow your own programs, pair to teacher pathway programs. There's different names, you know, in different states. Generally, people have the same idea, but it's essentially getting individuals that are already working in a, cl- in a classroom, already working in a school and providing them the opportunity to go to school to become licensed. They know that they like the town they're living in. And that's a big problem for us in rural North Dakota, right? We have, we're graduating teachers, but do they want to go to, you know, a small town in rural North Dakota? Well, our paraprofessionals already live there. They, they already know they like working in a school and their family is there likely. And so how do we get them licensed? And so we had developed our own grow your own program as well. Uh, several years ago, we partnered with a couple of our teacher education preparation programs, our teacher colleges in the state, and said, these people can't quit their jobs and move to a university town to get their teaching license. So we've got to figure out a better way to do this. And so we developed Grow Your Own programs, and we'd used our federal funding, uh, and we actually used some of our COVID funding, our relief funding, to support uh, scholarships for these teachers. So essentially, the school district identifies these paraprofessionals. They continue to work in the schools while they're educated. They don't have to forego an income that is supporting their family, and they're being educated by our teacher preparation programs. Well, Tennessee led the way, and a couple years ago, 
when they said, so we have these programs, but in order to be a registered apprenticeship program, it's significant. When you can be a registered apprenticeship program, uh, registered on a, and, and approved by the Department of Labor, that's a big deal. That is years and years and decades and decades of research about what a good an apprenticeship, a good grow your own program is. And so teaching had never been on the occupation list by the Department of Labor. And so Tennessee, uh, my, my friend and colleague, Penny Schwinn, who you've had on, and, and we, I think we all adore, um, she led the way and said, worked with the Department of Labor and said, we want to ensure that we uh, have a, a, a high quality program that helps us create best, the best teachers that we can. So they got approved. Um, it opened up the door for all other states to become registered apprentice so we could to engage and take advantage of, of the the registered apprenticeship guidelines best practices and we were approved as a teacher apprenticeship program last December so that made us eligible to apply for the Department of Labor grants they have the safe grant and so that became that became available in February of this year we applied for it the Department of Public Instruction applied for it we are the only Department of Education in the nation that applied for the grant. And we received not only the formula grant, but we received the $3 million that we asked for in the competitive grant. So we're the only Department of Education that applied. And of course, we um, received the award. And so now all $3 million of our ask is going to support more paraprofessionals who want to become teachers. Well, in the course of that, we really were working with our teachers. And as, 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 as I said, we have a teacher shortage problem in the state, and it's not unique to us. Mm -hmm. uh, our entire nation is experiencing this. And, and I was visiting overseas with some other elected leaders just a few weeks ago. This is an international problem. Even countries that are highly regarded, such as Finland, are they're experiencing the same level of a reduced number of teachers. When I visit with teachers in North Dakota, it's never really about pay, Mike. It's really about respect, and it's about support that they get. And respect is their biggest complaint. The second biggest issue that they share with me is that they don't feel supported by their building principal and or the other leaders that they're working for. And so we are working with David Donaldson of the National Grow Your Own Center. He had been with the Tennessee Education Department uh, while Penny was there, while Commissioner Schwinn was there, helped stand up that program and was very familiar with the Department of Labor process. He came to us and said, you know, you guys are great partners in North Dakota. Would you consider working with us to put an application forward to add principles to the list of apprenticeships. And so we went through um, the request process. And in June of 2023, we learned from the Department of Labor that they were adding the principal profession to their list of occupations that could be an, a registered apprenticeship program. And again, so moving that grow your own principle um, that is, you know, sometimes it's grow your own, right? And when it's state developed, you do the best you can, but when you are suddenly part of a U.S. Depart a federal Department of Labor program, you have a lot more avenues and a lot more supports and a lot more tools that you can work with. And so that's the advantage of having that occupation added to the list of apprenticeable occupations. And it's truly because we need to support our teachers on both sides. They need to have a strong leader and they need to have strong paraprofessionals. So that's our next step is to begin our youth and young adult apprenticeship program for, to to grow more paraprofessionals in our state. You know, I love it. And it, of course, I mean, some of these ideas have been around a long time, right? These ideas of career ladders. I mean, Lamar Alexander used to talk about this in the 1980s, right? Yes. But, but the ability to do this now in a rigorous way, like you say, to have these quality standards with the Department of Labor, uh, super important and, and to make it real. 
I mean, it does make a ton of sense that, especially in rural areas, uh, you've got to focus on the local human capital and talent pipeline that you've already got and, and make good use of that. But but I am curious, Kirsten, even in, in North Dakota, which is such a rural state, I mean, is this going to ever be a significant part of the pipeline for teachers or for principals? Or is this still, you know, is this a little bit of a, you know, on the margins kind of thing? Now, it is uh, 10 years I've been in office. Actually, I'm just finishing my 11th year. So longest serving state chief in, in the nation right now. Congrats. Um, thank you. Um, this is the biggest difference of any program in the last decade that I've seen. And, and prior to that, I served for a decade on, the, on a local school board. I was the president of a local school board for almost a decade. And so, you know, we had the problem a decade ago. This program has been has made the most significant difference. We have Again, we started it as a grow your own program, and we have about uh, a two dozen of our former paraprofessionals are now licensed teachers in those rural school districts that we started this with. We opened up our application form for the SAFE grant this fall, and the applicants just flooded in hundreds of paraprofessionals saying, I'm, I want to be a, a teacher. If the money is available, help us. And so I don't think that this is a fringe, uh, a, a fringe effort. We are just starting our principal apprenticeship program, second semester of this school year in January. We're working with one university in the state and two school districts. Um, that uh, I think might be a little more challenging because most of our small school districts don't have an associate principal or a vice principal or even a dean of students to slot into that because one of the expectations is that they aren't a classroom teacher, that the school district is 100% investing in their ability to work as an apprentice as a building principal for at least those two years. So that we'll see how that goes. But uh, and in visiting with my colleagues that have the other states that have begun these apprenticeship programs, this isn't something that is fringe around the edges. But we do have other issues to address. And, you know, the the issue of teacher respect. Mm -hmm. David, get, get, get in here as a former classroom teacher yourself. Let me say, I, I really like at a very basic level, the idea of um, going to school for the thing that you're doing, right? I, I, I mean, not just in teaching, but in general, I don't think we do enough of that. I think it's a big part of the problem with higher ed, right? Is that you go for to school for something that might be vaguely related to the thing that you might do. And guess what? Uh, as a result, we, we don't necessarily get the right skills out of higher ed, right? And we have a similar problem within, you know, getting more specific within teaching, right? You you go to school um, and then afterwards you figure out what you should have been learning in school on the job, right? And so I guess I'm just curious, it's sort of a half-formed thought, right? But whether this can ever sort of, I mean, we're addressing a crisis now, but it seems to me this is actually a very healthy way to train teachers and principals full stop. In other words, like, I, I just wonder whether this can at some level displace the model where people um, who don't have as much experience with the actual job of teaching, present company excluded, right, can you know, go give it a try and then, at, you know, in some capacity and then actually, you know, invest more deeply and learn on the job. And I don't know, I guess I'm just curious to know whether you think this can ever go so mainstream that it starts to displace sort of more traditional ways of doing things. So we could have a whole conversation about higher ed and how that needs to adjust and um, and and maybe better suit our learners of the 21st century in higher ed. And, and I will say, I sure hope it does. I will just be I will answer that question directly. And I say I will say I sure hope it does displace the the way that we are doing there. There are so many challenges. You know, we, we have we, we were also doing a flipped model 
for our special education teachers in the state. Our licensing board has approved this. Our legislature um, passed some legislation that allowed it this last session. Uh, so in, in, in August, it became law. And simply for our special education teachers, instead of taking the 100 and 200 level courses their freshman and sophomore year of, of college, they're taking their special education courses, those 300 and 400 level courses. And we are not provisionally licensing them. We're giving them another mid, mid-level, as you know, as you said, we're talking about stackable credentials. We're talking about certificates. It's so the licensing board created a, a, a certificate for those students that have completed their special education courses, their 300 and 400 level courses. They are actually going out into our schools now and acting as the teacher of record for special education students. And they are taking their generals, their algebra class, their, you know, freshman English, their 100. They're taking those virtually, remotely in a distance learning manner. So they're getting their full bachelor's degree. And once they are, they'll be fully licensed as a, as a teacher. But we are flipping that around because a traditional pathway in a teacher preparation program, you take those courses your freshman, sophomore year. A lot happens before in life, before you finally get to take any courses on the things that you have said you wanted to do, teaching. And, and, and that, that, that's just wrong. And so we have to think about doing this differently. The reason that I'm so supportive and the, the reason that I think the difference is being made with this apprenticeship program, whether it's a registered apprenticeship or a grow your own, is student teaching requirement in North Dakota is 12 weeks. You do that 12 weeks in the fall, or in the spring, you've never started up your own classroom. You've never set the norms for expectation of relationship because you did your student teaching in the fall, in the spring. Conversely, if you do it in the fall, you've never wrapped up a year. You've never seen those students through a year. And, and things happen at Christmas time <laughs> that, you know, that can absolutely torpedo your entire plan for the rest of the year. And so having never gone through that and, and being placed in charge your very first year as a teacher and going through that, without a mentor, without any experience, it's it's just setting our teachers up for failure. A statistic that I shared um, just a few minutes ago at a, at a presentation that I was doing for a Republican event was we aren't, the problem in North Dakota isn't that we aren't graduating enough people who want to be teachers. We have 10,000 licensed teachers or thereabout teaching in our classrooms in the state this fall, but we also have 10,000 licensed teachers that have chosen not to be in the classroom. So retention is our issue and not necessarily recruitment. So we've got to figure out how to better support them. Well, when, now that you figured out the recruitment side and the pipelines, we'll, we'll get you working on the retention front next. Hey, uh, Kirsten Baszler, the state superintendent of North Dakota. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's really a pleasure to be with you. Keep up the great work. I love reading your stuff, listening to your stuff. You're a, a great beacon for all of us, even in this middle of America state in North Dakota. So thanks so much. All right. Thank you so much. Well, now it's time for everyone's favorite Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Mike. So have either of you been to North Dakota? I have not. Yeah, you read my mind. I was just about to say, I'm embarrassed to say, I think I've only been to South Dakota. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's impressive. So, so North, I've got, I've been stuck with four states that I haven't been to for, I think, over a decade now. I've been stuck at, at 46 states and it's North and South Dakota, Montana and Hawaii. 
I still need. So anybody in those states, if you've got, you know, a need for an education policy pundit to come to a conference or something, please let me know. That includes you, uh, Kirsten, state superintendent. All right, Amber, what you got for us this week? We have a new IES funded descriptive study. It's going to look at various alternative accountability decisions and how they impact school ratings. And also, I would say not ratings, but just what you need to think about as you uh, decide whether you're going to weight growth or proficiency more in the calculations or what the, what it matters if you base these calculations on one, two, or three years of data. We've kind of played around with this a little bit, especially in our uh, Fordham, Ohio team. They've done some back-of-the-envelope calculations to look at you know, which schools would get different grades if they looked at accountability more, growth more. So anyway, we actually, you know, this is a real study um, that's asking that question that a lot of us have sort of, you know, pondered over the years. They draw on eight years of administrative data in North Carolina, uh, includes roughly 1,900 schools that were open for all eight years of their study period. They developed multiple ESSA-compliant school quality indices, includes proficiency rates, growth, graduation rates for high school, ELL proficiency and chronic absenteeism, which is the typical, you know, flavor of what these um, accountability systems include. They simulate the school ratings and the bottom 5% of schools, because that's what ESSA says they have to do, uh, identify those bottom 5%, and they look at how it changes given each of their simulated indices. They're looking at trade-offs relative to two measures. Uh, one is stability. So basically, you know, they're looking at consistency and whether over time you're going to see differential volatility at different points in the distribution. And then they're looking at equity, which this is a little bit, you know, in the weeds, but real quick. So it's whether the share of schools under three quantiles of economic disadvantaged students or black students, whether they would clock in at exactly 5% in each quantile. So in other words, you're looking at the 25% of schools with the largest share of economically disadvantaged kids, the middle 50%, and the 25% with the smallest share of these students. And then you're saying, okay, how much does that deviate from identifying 5% of schools uh, in each of those quantiles? Uh, and then validity, it's not really measured, but it's sort of discussed. So I'll touch on that in a minute. All right. The three uh, simulations, just a little bit on what they were. One weights proficiency and growth mostly the same at the elementary and middle school levels, and proficiency is weighted twice as much as growth at the high school level. The second weighting weights proficiency more, so we're weighting them basically the same, then proficiency more, and then the third one obviously is growth more. And then the years are toggled. So then they look at, okay, what if we did a single year versus two or three? And then they look at, okay, how what, if, what changes if we identify schools that need intervention based on whether they fall in that lowest performance group three years or two years? <laughs> so they're playing around with a lot of variables here. Uh, hopefully you followed all that. All right, results. So the stability piece first. Weighting proficiency rather than growth more heavily produces more stable year-to-year -year ratings. I think we knew that, uh, mostly because proficiency rates are strongly correlated with student characteristics. And not surprisingly, ratings based on three years are three to four times more stable than those based on a single year, which also seems intuitive. And then they find what they call the three of three rule. Um, to be the most stable. So when you classify schools for intervention that fall in that lowest performance group for three consecutive years, produces the most stable list. But this is an important nugget that was kind of hidden in there. 
when you're talking about stability, if you use three years of data versus just one year, which is what the vast majority of states do when they don't have to, it offsets the loss of stability associated from shifting from high proficiency to high growth. So even though you've got you know more schools that are going to be stable under this weighting of the proficiency index, you can recoup that stability if you use three years of data under the high growth model. All right, equity angle, um, the higher proficiency index is the most inequitable, which again follows what we've already said. Higher growth is the least inequitable. For example, under the higher proficiency index, 70% of kids in the lowest rated 20% of schools were economically disadvantaged compared with 39% in the top 20% of schools. And then when you use the higher growth index, 65% of students in the lowest rated 20% of schools were economically disadvantaged compared with 47% in the top 20% of schools. And then same sort of idea when they aggregate into these three quantiles, none of the simulations are equitable in terms of identifying exactly 5% um, in each of these buckets. But they did find, and I'll give you some numbers again, the higher proficiency index would identify 15 to 16% of schools with the greatest economic disadvantage, 3% in the middle, and 0.01% of schools with the least disadvantaged. But when you go to the higher growth, comparatively, it's doing 10 to 11% with the greatest economic disadvantage, 5% in the middle, and 0.06% at the low end of the disadvantage spectrum. So anyway, bottom line is you should use three years, no matter what, no matter what you want to weight more heavily, uh, but each has trade-offs. And the researchers seem to care a lot about if you go with growth, you know, don't name and shame when you prioritize growth. So that's what I've got. That was a lot, but I hope you got the gist. I mean, I, I think it confirmed what we would uh, suspect, right? I think most of us at Fordham are big fans of growth and certainly using more years of data is better than using fewer years of data. You know, and it does remind us, look, even if you use growth, it is still the case that most of these chronically low performing schools are high poverty schools, right? But again, that doesn't surprise us, right? Because, you know, we know that there's, uh, you know, negative effects of concentrating poverty. Uh, we know that those high poverty schools, you know, struggle to get the resources they need, including uh, the best teachers. Uh, they're just facing a lot of challenges, right? It's hard. It's a lot harder to get kids to... Uh, you know, to learn a lot when you're dealing with concentrated poverty. Uh, but it does at least show that it is possible uh, when you use the high growth model. There are some of those high poverty schools that pop out as very high performing. You can differentiate the ones that are making a difference with the ones that, you know, have these challenges and are just, uh, you know, sinking underneath them. David? <laughs> well, I'm curious to know, Amber, did, what did the researchers think view as the purpose of these ratings, right? Because... Yeah, I mean, that's where they left it. You know, they say, look, if you care more about stability, then, you know, maybe you want to look at proficiency. I mean, they, they don't come down and say, this is what you should do. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's that's kind of my whole thing when, in this discussion. And I, I am going to repeat some things that I've said before, but, I, you know, you have to start with the question of what is the rating for? Um, and because depending on what it's for, you should design it differently, right? And if, if your goal is to identify schools that should be closed, then I would argue that achievement is basically irrelevant, 
right? And any weight is basically counterproductive. I mean, it should be 100% growth. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I just, I don't understand what the case is for. And 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 I, I mean, I, I, I don't want to, I, I get that there's a case for, for stability, just so that the public's perceptions of schools can, you know, and the rating system seems credible to people, right? Like, so it's, you know, you, you want stability just for some sort of basic political reasons. But I guess I just feel like rationally, I don't understand why you would mix these two things together because they are answering fundamentally different questions, right? And one is, how are the kids doing? And the other is, how is the school doing? And mixing together is just, it's just like a, you know, it's a banana orange. It's not, it's not a thing anymore. It's not telling, answering either of those questions accurately or in an unbiased way. And so... I don't know. I'm I'm sort of hostile to the whole notion. I would rather we just picked one or or had two ratings. I realize that I don't face quite the same incentives that I don't know the folks designing these systems do. But I mean, the the answer doesn't change, right? Um, and and so I guess I'm just frustrated that we're still having this conversation about like what's the right mix. The right mix is not to mix. At least that's my opinion. No, no, I think it makes sense. And look, I think that my, if I heard Amber right, that the context here was around the federal identification of the, the lowest performing schools. And those are supposed to get both extra help, more resources, right? Some of the Title I set aside money, uh, what used to be the school improvement grants money uh, and interventions, right? The, you know, So it's a little more helping than tough love. You talked about closing schools, but also even just in the helping. I don't know. I don't know what the argument for looking at achievement is on that front, you know, because is that there, there's going to be some affluent school out there that has very low growth and they're skating by. I, I guess that's the case, although I think the numbers Amber said was that, you know, those schools just don't exist. I mean, that those affluent schools, high achievement schools get pretty good growth. So, you know. I mean, if your model is really these are the schools that need help, then I don't fully understand why we care about growth, right? Like, you know, why are the kids, if a kid is low performing, a kid is low performing. It doesn't matter if the school is, you know, if the school is knocking out of the park, the kid still needs help, right? And arguably, we should be put giving more money to the schools that are doing a great job with those kids, right? We should be putting good money after good, not good money after bad. So I don't know, you have to, you have to pick I feel like you have to pick a theory of action, right? Either the theory of action is we're going to go in and we're going to help the schools where the kids are low performing because that's where the need is. Or we're going to say we're going to, you know, have some consequences, call it what you want for the schools that aren't being good schools. Um, but you can't do both, right? They're two different things. All right. We will leave it there. Yeah, yeah, I know. I don't know, David, what you, there's also the, the angle of these things that got to be easy to understand. So I don't know if a mix is easy to understand or two different ratings. But anyway, that's that comes into play as well. I have double A batteries. Everybody knows what that means. It's <laughs> right. not that hard. Right. No, my, my kid's report card has seven grades on it. One for each course. <laughs> yeah. I mean, OK, people, that is all the time that we've got for this week. And so until next week, I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at fordhaminstitute.org.